Chapter One of Sarabian by Francis Stevens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sarapian by Francis Stevens. Chapter One Seaweed and a Purple Veil. It began because, meeting Nils Burquist in town one August morning, he dragged me off for luncheon at a little restaurant on a side street where he swore I should meet some of the rising geniuses of the century. What we did meet was the commencement for me of such an extraordinary experience as befalls few men. At the time, however, the whole affair seemed incidental, with a spice of grotesque but harmless absurdity. Jimmy Moore and his Alicia. How could anyone, meeting them as I did, have believed a grimness behind their amusing eccentricity? I was just turned twenty-four that August day. A boy's guileless enthusiasm for the untried was still strong in me, coupled with a tendency to make friends in all quarters, desirable or otherwise. Almost anyone who liked me, I liked. My college years, very recently ended, had seen me sworn comrade to a reckless and on his way to be notorious son of plutocracy, while I was also well received in the room which Nils Burquist shared with two other embryo socialists of fanatic dye. A certain ingenuous likableness must have been mine even then, I think, to have gained me not only toleration but real friendship in both camps. Burquist, however, was older than I by several years. He had earned his college days before enjoying them, and, college ended, he dropped back into the struggle for existence and out of my sight, till I ran across him in town that August day. To play host, even at a very moderate luncheon, must have been an extravagance for Nils, though I didn't think of that. He was a man with whom one somehow never associated the idea of need. Tall, lean, with a dark, long face, high cheekbones and deep eyes set well apart, he dressed badly and walked the world in a careless air of ownership that mere clothes could not in the least affect. His intimates knew him capable of vast, sudden enthusiasms, and equally vast depressions of the spirit. But up or down, he was Nils Burquist, sufficient unto himself, asking no favors, and always with an indefinable air of being well able to grant them. I admired and liked him, was very glad to see him again, and cheerfully let him steer me around two corners and in the door of his bragged-of trysting-place for incipient genius. On first entering, my friend cast an eye about the aggregation of more or less shabby individuals present and muttered, "'Not a soul here,' in a disappointed tone. Then, glimpsing a couple seated at a corner table laid for four, he brightened a trifle and led me over to them. Nils's idea of a formal presentation was always more brief than elaborate. After addressing the fair-haired, light-eyelashed, palm-beach-suited person on one side of the table as Jimmy, and his vis-a-vis, -vis, a darkly mysterious lady in a purple veil, as Alicia, he referred to me casually as Clay, and considered the introduction complete. I do not mean that the lady's costume was limited to the veil. Only that this article was of such a peculiar, brilliantly, fascinatingly ugly hue 
that the rest of her might have been clothed in anything from a mermaid scales to a speckled calico wrapper. I can imagine nothing except a gown of the same color which would have distracted one's attention from that veil. The thing was draped over a small hat and hung all about her head and face in a sort of circular curtain. Behind it I became aware of two dark bright eyes watching me, like the eyes of some sea-creature laired behind a highly futurist wave. Having met peculiar folk before in Berquist's company, I took a seat opposite the veil without embarrassment. "'Charming little place, this,' I lied, glancing about the low-ceilinged, semi-ventilated, architectural container for chairs, tables, and genius which formed a background to the veil. "'Sorry I didn't discover it earlier.' The dark eyes gleamed immovably from their lair. I essayed a direct question. "'You lunch here frequently, I presume?' No answer. The veil didn't so much as quiver. Even my genial amity began to suffer a chill. Suddenly Jimmy, of the Palm Beach suit, transferred his attention from Burquist to me. "'Please, don't try to talk with Alicia,' he said. "'She is in the silence today. If you draw her out, it will disturb the vibrations for a week and make the deuce of a hole in my work. Do you mind?' With a slight gasp, I adjusted myself to the unusual. I said I didn't mind anything. "'You're the right sort, then. Might have known it, or you wouldn't be traveling with old man Nils, eh?' "'What you going to have? Nothing worth eating except the broiled bluefish, and that's scorched. Always is. What you eating, Nils?' "'Rice,' said Burquist briefly. "'On the one-dish-at-a-time diet, eh? Great stuff if you can stick it out.' Make an athlete out of a centenarian, if you can stick it out. Bluefish for one or two, he added, addressing the waiter and myself in the same sentence. Two, I smiled. Palm Beach Jimmy seemed to have usurped my friend's role of host with calm casualism. The man's blond hair and faintly yellow lashes and eyebrows robbed his face of emphasis, so that the remarkably square chin and high sloping forehead did not impress one at first. His way of assuming direction of even the slightest affairs about him struck me as easy-going and careless, rather than domineering. He gave the rest of the order with an occasional kindly reference to my desires. And boiled rice for one, he finished. The waiter cast a curious glance at the purple veil. "'Nothing for the lady?' he queried. "'Seaweed, of course,' retorted Jimmy. "'You're new at this table, aren't you?' "'Just started working here. Seaweed, sir?' "'Certainly. There it is, staring you in the face under salads. Study your menu, man.' "'That,' explained Jimmy, after the waiter's somewhat dazed departure, "'is the only reason we come here. One place I know of that serves Rhodomenia serrata. Great stuff.' rich in mineral salts and vitamins. "'You didn't order any for yourself,' I ventured. "'No. Great stuff, but has a horrid taste. Simply horrid. Alicia eats it as a martyr to the cause. We have to be careful of her diet. Very careful. Nils, old man, what's the new wrong to the human race you're being so silent over?' "'Can't say without becoming personal,' retorted Burquist calmly. What? 
Oh, by Jove, I forgot you don't approve. Still clinging to the sacred barriers, eh? The barriers exist, and they are sacred. Nils's long, dark face was solemn, but as he was capable of cracking the wildest jokes with just that solemn expression, I wasn't sure if the conversation were light or serious. I only knew that, as yet, I had failed to get a grip on the situation. The man talked about his seaweed-fed Alicia as if the lady were not present. What curiosity in human shape did that veil hide? One thing I was uneasily aware of. Not once, since the moment of our arrival, had those laired bright eyes strayed from my face. The barriers exist, Burquist repeated. I do not believe that you or others like you can tear them down. If I did, I should be justified in taking your life, as though you were any other dangerous criminal. When those barriers go down, chaos will swallow the world, and the race of men will be superseded by the race of madmen." Jimmy laughed, unstartled by my friend's reference to cold-blooded assassination. "'In the world of science,' he retorted, what one can do, one may do. If every investigator of novel fields had stopped his work for fear of scorched fingers—' "'In the material, physical world,' interrupted Burquist, speaking in the same solemn, dogmatic tone, "'what one can do, one may do. There, the worst punishment of a step too far can be only the loss of life or limb. It is man's rightful workshop. Let him learn its tools at the cost of a cut or so. But the field that you would invade is forbidden. By whom? By what? By its nature. A man who risks his life may be a hero, but what is the name for a man who risks his soul? Oh, Nils, Nils, you anachronism, you, you inquisitioner! Here, you say the physical world is open ground, don't you? Yes and that what is commonly referred to as the supernatural is forbidden? In the sense we speak of, yes. Very well. Now where do you draw the fine dividing line? How do you know that your soul, as you call it, isn't just another finer form of matter? A good medium—Alicia here can do it—stretches out a tenuous arm, a misty, wraithy, semi-formless limb, and lifts a ten-pound weight off the table, while her physical hands and feet are bound so they can't stir an inch. Telekinesis, that is called, or levitation, and you talk about it as if it were done by some sort of supernatural willpower. Willpower, yes, but will actuating matter to move matter. That fluidic arm is just as material, though not so substantial, as your own husky biceps. It's thinner, different, but material, of course it's material. Why, you yourself are a walking case of a miraculous levitation. Will moving matter. Will, a superphysical force generated on the physical plane. Where's your fine dividing line? You talk about the material plane. I won't any more, broke in Burquist hastily. But you know that there are entities and forces dangerous to the human race outside of what we call the natural world that your investigations are no better than a sawing at the bars of a cage full of tigers. If I thought you could loose them, I have already told you what I would do." There was a dark gleam in Burquist's deep-set eyes that suddenly warned me he meant exactly what he said, 
though the meaning of the whole argument was as hazy to me as the face behind that astounding veil. Jimmy himself looked sober. "'Here comes your rice,' he said shortly. "'Eat it, you old vegetarian, and get off the murder subject. I'll expect you to be coming around some night with a carving-knife if you say much more. There are police to guard you from the carving-knife. The wild marches between this world and the invisible are patrolled by no police. Yet you fear the knife which can harm only your body, and fearlessly expose your naked soul. Thanks, old man, but my soul is well able to take care of itself. Eat your rice. There, didn't I say the bluefish would be scorched? And it is. Behold, a prophet among you. The bluefish wasn't worrying me. What I was awaiting was the moment when that miraculously colored veil should be uplifted. Surely, her purple screen removed, the lady would cease to stare me out of countenance. Before the veil, a large platter of straggling, saw-edged, brownish-red leaves had been set down. The dish looked as horrid as Jimmy said it tasted. In a quiver of impatience I waited. At last I should see. A hand, white and well-shaped, but slender to emaciation, was raised to the veil's lower edge. The edge was lifted slightly. Another hand conveyed a modest forkful of the uncanny edible upward. It passed behind the veil. The fork came away empty. With a gasping sigh I relinquished hope and turned my attention to the scorched bluefish. Jimmy may have noted my emotion. When Alicia is in the silence, he offered, she has to be guarded. The vibratory rhythm of the violet light waves is less harmful than the rest of the spectrum, hence the veil. Invention of my own. You agree with our wild anarchist here, Mr. Er, Clay? Sacred barrierist and all that? My name's Barber, I said. Clayton S. Barber. As for the barriers, I must admit, you've been talking over my head. So? Don't believe it. Pardon me, but your head doesn't look that sort. Hasn't Nils told you what I'm doing?" Nils, said Burquist, with what would have been cold insolence from anyone else, has something better to do than walk about the world exploiting you to his acquaintances. I'm smashed, crushed flat, laughed Jimmy. He seemed one of the most good-humored individuals I had ever met. Never mind, anarchist. I'll tend to it myself. He turned again to me. Come to think of it, one of Nils's introductions is an efficient disguise. I'm James Barton Moore. I murmured polite gratification. For the life of me, I couldn't recall hearing the name before. His perception was as quick as his good humor. That ready laugh broke out again. Never heard of me, eh? That's a fault of mine. Expect the whole world to be thrillingly expectant of results from my work. Ever hear of the Psychic Research Association? Certainly. I looked as intelligent as possible. Investigate ghosts and haunted houses and all that, don't they? You're right, son. Ghosts and haunted houses about cover the association's metier. Bah! Do you know who I am? A member? I hazarded. Not exactly. I'm the man the association forced off its directing board. And I'm also the man who is going to make the association look like a crowd of children hunting spooks in the nursery.
Come around to my place tonight, and I'll show you something." The invitation was so explosively abrupt that I started in my chair. Why, er, I began. Nils broke in again. Don't go, he said coolly. Let him alone, enjoined Moore, but with no sign of irritation. You drop in around seven, here. He scribbled an address on the back of a card and tossed it across the table. And I'll promise you an interesting evening. You are very good, I said, not knowing quite what to do. I already had an engagement for that evening. On the other hand, my ever-ready curiosity had been aroused. Don't go, repeated Burquist tonelessly. Thanks, but I believe I will. Good, you're the right sort. Knew it the minute I set eyes on you. Don't extend these invitations to everyone. Not by any means." Burquist pushed back his chair. "'Are you going on with me, Clay?' he inquired. I thought he was carrying his peculiar style of rudeness rather beyond the boundaries. But he was really my host, so I acquiesced. I took pains, however, to bid a particularly courteous farewell to the eccentric pair with whom we had lunched. I might or might not keep my appointment with Moore, but if I did, I wish to be sure of a welcome. End of chapter 1